Welcome to this BTOG podcast. Uh, my name is Stephen Harrow and I'm a consultant clinical oncologist at the Edinburgh Cancer Centre. I'm also a BTOG steering member. This is part of our regular podcast series entitled BTOG Does. We have informal chats with experts in their fields and tackle the most important questions that we all face in the diagnosis and treatment of thoracic cancers. It's important to say that sponsors of BTOG do not have any role whatsoever in the planning, content or delivery of anything discussed. So today's podcast is BTOG Does Management of Cancer Cachexia. So it's a pleasure for me to introduce uh, Dr Barry Laird, who is a clinical academic at Edinburgh University. I am and a consultant um, in palliative care. I've known Barry for a number of years, um, and I know that he is um, interested uh, very much in this topic. So um, it's about 11 o'clock in the morning, Barry. I presume you're, you're sitting with a cup of coffee and we're going to have a 20-minute chat about this. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. Excellent. Right. So let's start off, Barry. How do you spell cachexia? I've got no idea. <laughs> it's interesting, actually, because um, it comes from the, the Greek for, for um, kakos and hexia, which is bad condition, right? But it's C-A-C-H-E-X-I-A is how you spell it. And the, the, the correct way to pronounce it is cachexia, but a lot of people will, will drop that, the second C. All so, right. You know, interestingly, Stephen, you and I both you and I both sort of trained in Glasgow, and you'll be aware of the, the cathedral in Glasgow, Glasgow Cathedral. Now, uh-huh. to put Cahexia into some context, Glasgow Cathedral was established um, about a thousand years ago. Okay. The first description of Cahexia was actually done um, by Hippocrates. So we both took the Hippocratic host. Uh-huh. And the first description of Cahexia was described by Hippocrates about 400 BC. So this is a condition that's been around for, for two and a half thousand years almost. And it's, I think it's fantastic that BTOG are you know, devoting time to this and supporting this cause as, as they have done in the past. Because as we talked today, Stephen, there is no licensed treatment for cancer cachexia. So it's, it's a really important subject and it's one of the things that drives me to research it so much. Okay, so tell me then, Barry, what is it? Like, define yeah. it for me. Yeah, so it's interesting. That's like a good. That's been an area of much debate over the years. So, I, I think the sort of technical definition would be, you know, um, loss, a, a condition, um, complex syndrome resulting in loss of mass, um, primarily muscle plus or minus fat mass, associated with reduced um, function, um, fatigue, loss of appetite on a background of a systemic metabolic upset. I think we can simplify that definition a bit more. And the most recent um, definition by a group called ESPIN, the European Society of Parental Nutrition and Metabolism, would define cachexia as um, disease-related malnutrition on a background of inflammation. So if we think about, you know, particularly for BTOG, for our, our people we see who, are, who have cancer, we know that the inflammatory response is, is quite pronounced in these people. And that associated with, with, with malnutrition um, is, is really cancer cachexia. And it's, it's quite, what a key, a key point, Stephen, is really the, the whole idea of malnutrition here in that it's not just a simple case of people not eating enough food or taking enough nutrients in the diet. It's, um, you know, as I always say, you know, more fuel in the tank is not the simple answer to cachexia. We have to target both loss of, loss of, um, loss of muscle and also target the inflammatory response. 
So is this something that, you know, is specific to lung cancer or is this a general thing? Is it more common in lung cancer? What yeah. do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so yeah, so it's, so it's more common in lung cancer. It's, the suggestion is that about, you know, it's present in about 50% of lung cancer patients at diagnosis. Um, and about two thirds of, of, of patients will have this, you know, in, in sort of the latter stages of disease. It's, it's certainly more common in lung cancer and more common in pancreatic cancers. It's less so in things like breast cancer, prostate cancer, and probably colorectal cancer, sort of a middle ground. So my sort of, you know, rule of thumb is, it's funny because I still think of it, it's the bad cancers that really get cachexia. So the lung, the pancreas, the upper GIs. Um, and I do think that a bit of that is they're probably a lot more inflammatory cancers. Um, okay. That, that, and that's probably one of the main drivers of cancer cachexia. Okay. And, um, you know, I, I can think of patients in clinic that, you know, I would think are cachectic or cachectic, yep. um, as you've taught me how to say it. Um, <laughs> you know, is there a, a way of identifying these patients? You know, is it is it just like I see, you know, quite thin um, patients who report going off their food? I mean, is that it? Or is there a classification system? Yeah, there's sort of there's, there's, there's various classification systems really you could use. I guess what I would highlight is the concept of cachexia being a sort of trajectory. And it's argued that it goes through three phases. So sort of pre-cachexic phase where patients may have minimal or no weight loss, but have this sort of systemic, um, the metabolic upset going on in the background. So you could, you could have somebody quite easily in your clinic who has the pre-cachexic phase, but you just don't see it. They just, they just don't see it. Do you see it on imaging, Barry? I was just actually thinking yeah. as you said that, you know, when patients present and they've maybe had like a chest X-ray or a CT scan a year before or something, can you, do you, is there any evidence yeah. that you can actually see that pre-phase? Right, really, really good point. Absolutely. So you, so you can, essentially. What we do okay. in a lot of our trials is we do um, what we call TT-based body composition. And it's quite cool. What you can do is essentially look at the anterior abdominal muscle wall at the level of the L3 vertebrae, and you can take the, the thickness of rectus abdominis, and mm. that you can take that muscle, you use very fancy um, computer algorithms, and what that gives you is, is two things. It gives you what's called an SMI and an SMD. So an SMI is your skeletal muscle index, so how much lean muscle, lean mass you have, and your skeletal muscle density is the quality of that muscle, how much that muscle is infiltrated with fat. So we can use in our clinics, in our, you know, you do MD, you do a CT scans on patients, we can actually look at those CT scans at diagnosis and look for evidence of, of, of loss of lean mass. Okay. But what we have, the big problem we have in the Western world, certainly in the UK, certainly in Scotland, Stephen, is that um, we have this concept called sarcopenic obesity. Now, in, the, in, the, in, in Scotland and in the Western world, a lot of our patients are a bit overweight. Hmm. So they, they are obese, but they can still lose lean, lean mass or which is also called sarcopenia. So these patients can actually have cachexia, but you don't see it because you think, well, they're a bit, they're a bit fat and you, know, you can't really see them losing weight so much. So it makes it harder to spot in these groups. So that's, that's one of the arguments where we could be using CT-based body composition analysis and routine you know, lung cancer practice, for example, to try and identify people at the early stages of cachexia. So are you saying then that people who are overweight, who um, 
probably are, have got don't report too much in the way of um, going on your loss of appetite. You can pick up that they're in this pre cachectic phase on imaging. Yeah, absolutely. So you can look okay. at imaging combination of imaging, and you can look at their inflammatory biomarkers, things like C-reactive protein or neutrophil count. And and I would I would the rule of thumb I would say is if you get somebody with a bad cancer, so a long cancer generally or a bad cancer, and they've got evidence of systemic inflammation, it's just a case of when rather than if they're going to develop cancer cachexia. All right, okay. You mentioned biomarkers, Barry, you're, you're quick off the mark there with biomarkers. So, so can you tell me what are the biomarkers for this? So we, we, we've yeah. got an idea of what the patient might look like, but um, yeah. we've talked about CT obviously is a biomarker. What, what other biomarkers are really easier to, to access? Yeah, so, so both ESPIN and ESMO advocate the use of what's called the, you know, the Glasgow prognostic score. Stephen, you and I are aware of that, you know, mm -hmm. obviously Glasgow, Glasgow um, trained. Can you explain um, what that is, Barry? Yeah, no, that combines two things. Combines CRP, so C-reactive protein, which is a positive marker of inflammation. So the more you're inflamed, the higher that goes. And you've got albumin. The albumin people tend to regard as a, a nutritional biomarker, but actually it's a negative bar biomarker of inflammatory response. So as you get inflamed, your albumin goes down. So this Glasgow prognostic score combines CRP. So you've got CRP over 10, um, and you've got an albumin over in less than 35, essentially you get a Glasgow prognostic score of two, and that's 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 bad. If you're if you're got a raised CRP, but your albumin is normal, um, you would have a score of one. And if both if both parameters are normal, your score would be zero. So ESPIN and ESMO, what they are saying really now is that in the assessment of, of cancer cachexia, you should include you should stage this concept of staging the host. Stephen, you do a lot you do a lot of, you know staging the tumor. Um, we're saying we should stage the host, and by do that, we okay. look at inflammatory biomarkers, as well as the other thing that you do routinely, which is you know ECOG performance status. So we think that those two parameters, ECOG performance status, and um, you know the Glasgow prognostic score, are, are a pretty good way of sort of if you like framing framing staging the host mm -hmm. um, that we see in clinic. Okay, um, and and you know. Who's the person, do you think, in the patient pathway that should be trying to identify this? Where should we? I mean, obviously, the earliest as possible, and there's a lots of prehab chat, and yeah. we'll not go down that road. But, you know, where, where should, who and where should we be trying to pick up this issue? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think, to answer the responsibility lies, lies a lot with, with all of us. So okay. I, would, I would argue that um, sometimes when, we're, when patients are in clinic, you know, if they're, they're seeing you, for example, the agenda could be, you know, talking about the treatment that's planned or they want to know more about their disease. But, and I think there's also been sometimes a reluctance to, to discuss this problem because if we don't have anything really to treat it at the moment, no licensed drugs, you, you can have a big discussion with somebody and say, well, here you see you've lost loads of weight and your appetite yeah. is terrible. That's really bad, but I don't have anything for it. Sorry about that. Yeah. It's almost a bit futile. But um, I think, I think, you know, we can mention it and there are some rudimentary things we think are probably good for managing it. I think okay. responsibility, I think it lies with the whole team. I think it lies with the whole team. Okay. It lies with, you know, the, the nurse specialists. It, it lies with the clinical support workers. It, it lies with the consultants. Um, and obviously your big interest is in, in radiotherapy. You know, nutrition is important in that mm -hmm. as well. So I think it's a duty for us all. So, um, Barry, if I, you know, I see a patient in clinic and I think, you know, the the... They, they look cachectic and 
and um, I do some bloods and I find out that they look in, they are inflamed. Where what do I do? Who do I discuss this with? What how can I help this patient? What what, yeah. what do you suggest? Yeah, I mean, it's I think the first thing you 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 could do is acknowledge acknowledge it's a problem with the patients. Sure. We know from speaking to carers and patients that um, they, they like to hear that you know this is a problem that's, that not just them are having, but it's nothing that they're doing. You know, they're not being mm -hmm. not being sort of strong enough to eat more. I think to acknowledge that. In terms of what you can do, well, as I said at the start of the call, there's, there's no there's no licensed treatment, but we we're doing a trial at the moment called the MENAC study, which is nearly nearly finished actually, and that targets yes. what that targets what we think are the three pillars of of cachexia, which are um, inflammation, nutrition, and function. So in that trial, we are giving patients some exercise advice, and that exercise advice is simple: is just do some aerobic exercise two to three times a week when you get mildly out of breath. Okay. I would say to patients, what I'd like you to do is go for a brisk walk when you're just slightly out of breath for 20 minutes, two or three times a week. As mm -hmm. simple as that. You'll have some patients, Stephen, who maybe already exercise, but doing that, that that's targeting function. How, how many times work. a week did you say two to three? About two to three times a week. So nothing okay. too dramatic. You know, 20 minutes, two to three times a week. And I, I try to say to them, build it into the lifestyle. I don't want them to join a gym, but if they, you know, if they go for a walk with a dog, try to walk a bit further or a bit brisker. Okay. Or if, you know, if they you know, walk for a newspaper in the morning, you know, try to just walk a wee bit, walk a bit longer, for example. So something like that. So that's a targeting function. And targeting nutrition, well, the key here is, 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 I call it energy. So it's getting as many calories into the patient as possible. And so what, the, the mantra I say to patients is, all your life will be telling you all the bad things you shouldn't eat. Hmm. I'm, going to turn that on its head now and all the things that you've been heard over the years you've not to eat would like you to eat so all right. the things that are high in calories cheese chocolate creams crisps you know um you know you know fried food anything that's high in calories tends to be small in size mm. so what you want is basically to have energy dense food so energy dense food and high protein food and the protein is the main constituent of muscle so I'll say to them, try to eat as much protein as you can. So, you know, chicken, fish, these sort of things. Optimize your protein, optimize your um, energy input. And this concept of eating sort of, you know, three meals a day, throw that out the window and have smaller meals often. So say sort of six snacks throughout the day. Mm. So that's so that's number two, and that, that's a, that's a targeting um, nutrition. The third thing we're doing in trial is, in, is targeting inflammation. Now, we're using ibuprofen in that study. Now, at the moment, I couldn't say to you, Stephen, you could you should prescribe ibuprofen for your patients with cachexia. But that's something that when the trial's published, if it's positive, we would see that this these three pillars of, uh, of targeting function through exercise, targeting nutrition through an energy-dense, high-protein diet, and targeting inflammation through simple ibuprofen would be almost the backbone of care that we would hope would be... Um, apply to you know all people with lung cancer okay so i think i think in a clinic you could spend five minutes just saying there's three things you need to do exercise food you know sorry or two things exercise and food at the moment mm -hmm. and if you can do that um is key and i always think it's important to get the caregiver the, the partner get them on board and right. give them a purpose as well. what was supplements barry you know quite often yeah. 
we, you know, we, we, we have this issue in clinic, I don't know if this is across the UK, of you know, who's going to prescribe supplements, is it the GP, is it us, how do you get access to them, do you need to go through a dietitian to get them? What about um, you know just giving everybody supplements? Just yeah, so a really good question. Actually, you can prescribe them. The GPs can prescribe them. Number one, the the supplements we have in the NHS are generally what we call one kilo one kilocalorie per mil. They come in a two hundred mil bottle, and it's the same as you know two hundred mils. So it's not in terms of calorie intake. It's just calories really. It's not much different to mm. taking you know a you know, a, a, a full strength, you know, sugar fizzy drink, for example, in terms of calorie okay. intake. But if patients find them palatable and they'll, you know, if it's softening, they don't want if patients like the taste of them, then it's a good way to get extra calories in. They're just an energy dense way of, way of nutrition. So, so if they didn't like them and lots of people don't like them, you can just say, you know, have a can of fizzy juice uh-huh. or. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right. I mean, anything, because okay. it's the same, the same, you know, a can of you know Coca Cola is 150 calories. If you take a 500 ml bottle, it's you know 200 calories. It's the same as what's in a you know a nutritional drink. Is it okay? I didn't know that. I mean, they have other they have other vitamins and things in them, but there's no real evidence that, that they make a dramatic difference. Mm-hmm. Some of just to point out, there's, there's some some supplements they're not available in the NHS have omega three in them, which are fish oil supplements. Mm-hmm. Now um, we're using them in our trial, but there's some. We think that the omega-3 in these supplements is an anti-inflammatory. So we think that's another way of targeting the inflammatory response. But again, the evidence doesn't support that at the moment. Um, it doesn't not support it, just doesn't support it yet. Okay. And what about other things that you can use? I mean, um, we in the past have um, prescribed um, kind of progesterone-type drugs. Um, yeah. I, you know, I don't use, I don't prescribe them anymore because I kind of never really, well, it was always kind of end of life stage mm-hmm. that you would mm-hmm. prescribe these to patients. So should we be using these drugs? Are these, are they valuable? Should we be using them earlier? Yep, yep. There's two, there's two, there's two big groups here. There's, there's um, um, so magestrol acetate mm-hmm. um, and the dexamethasone. So my short answer to this is, is no. All right. And I'll, I'll go through, you know, one at a time. Dexamethasone is, is useful um, in short term, and you'll give it alongside some emetogenic, you know, systemic therapies, et cetera, and that's fine. But what we know is that that use long-term dexamethasone cause, causes actually loss of lean mass, loss of muscle, which is what we are trying to prevent in cachexia. So short, a short, sharp shock occasionally is okay. Long-term use, I would, I would tend to avoid, except for patients near the end of life. Um, Magestrol, limited evidence it works, but there's a high, it makes people hungry, but doesn't really do any other effects on them. And there's quite a high risk of, you know, um, blood disorders with them. So like you, I don't really prescribe Magestrol or either. And is there evidence that if you give somebody steroids for less, like a short period of what you're talking, a week, two weeks, that yeah, actually so that does kickstart their appetite or? It, it, it can make them a bit better for a while. There's not really any evidence that after once it, they stop there's yeah. a sort of refractory loss of appetite again okay so um that's you know, what i would have I, thought but i just wondered whether or not actually yeah it does kind of kick start something but you don't think so i don't think longer it, it will help them for a week or so and then it'll wear off and right. then the, next, the next time you give it the effect is diminished okay and i always say to patients it's not just about the muscles you know it's not just about the muscles in your leg you know your heart's and muscles it's your intercostal uh-huh. muscles 
And we know that when people have got lower levels of muscle, their toxicity to systemic therapies is, is much higher. Okay. So, and what about the, the, the cannabis oils, the, yeah. the, the things that we get asked about quite a lot that um, I don't think any of us really know too much about? Yeah, so the cannabis oils, interestingly, the, the, the preparations that people can buy either on the internet or on high street stop shops have got such low levels of, of CBD in them that they're, they're almost pointless. So I would avoid, avoid against them. Nice, don't advise them either. Okay. But, um, and, you know, in Edinburgh, in a couple of centres in the UK, we're doing a phase one trial of an oral cannabinoid for cancer-related anorexia. Um, and that's what we call pure CB, CBD1 and 2 agonists. So it seems to improve appetite in healthy volunteers. So potentially, you know, that's a high concentration of, of CBD and that may improve appetite, but that's a trial that's ongoing. And, you know, if, if positive, that could be something we could have in our, our toolbox, if you like, to, mm -hmm. to, to help improve appetite. So, so that's quite interesting. So you, you, you think we should be, we are able to tell patients really the, the, these aren't strong enough to have an impact and actually go and have a can of Coke instead and Correct. a cream bun? Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Right. And, you know, all, you know, you know, the, the, the flora spread has to go and it's butter again and it's mm. cream, it's cream, you know, throw out the sweeteners, it's sugar in the cups of tea and coffee. It's, it's just getting energy into the patient. But the key thing is if, if you just give people um, calories and they don't exercise, they just get fat. So what you have to do is give people calories and get them to do some exercise. And then you get a thing called postprandial anabolism. So that results in anabolism, which is buildup of muscle. And that's what we're trying to do. Okay. So, Barry, we're nearly coming to the end of our 20-minute um, chat. Um, I'd quite like at this point just to ask you, is there something that you'd like to tell us that I haven't asked you uh, is of, of hot off the press interesting? Yeah, I, um, what, what I would say is that although there's no treatment at the moment, the cachexia sort of landscape has really improved in the last 10 years. There's lots of trials in development or running at the moment. So, you know, if, 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 you're, if you're in a, a centre in the UK... Um, or elsewhere, and you've not got a cachexia trial in your lung cancer portfolio, Stephen, you know, in Edinburgh, we're fortunate to have several trials there. If you've not got a cancer cachexia trial in your portfolio, you know, reach out and ask why and get that point so that, you know, all patients can potentially have access to that. And would it be palliative care teams that we would, that centres would reach out to? I actually think that, I actually think that cachexia has been the remit of palliative care for a while, but a lot of palliative care is almost end of life care, but that by that point the shift has sailed. So I actually yeah. think it's on I think oncologists are the ones that should be, you know, okay. dealing with this. So um or at least, you know, well versed. And the trials that I'm running in the UK, with the exception of two sites, they're all run by oncologists. And um, you know, I think I think there's been a real positivity. BTOG have certainly helped, but the real positivity amongst oncologists now that they see this as a not just a handmaiden, but an actual critical mm. part that influences the efficacy of therapies. And, um, you know, I would say, say you know, at the, to finalise this, we talked about staging the tumour, and I said stage the, stage the host. So mm -hmm. we need to stage the host. And just as you treat the tumour, Stephen, in your clinic, I would say we treat the host as well. Mm -hmm. so stage the tumour, stage the host, treat the tumour, treat the host. I think that's true, because I think that, um, you know, the cancer cachexia, the, the, the way patients look, is, is, is such a stigma associated with it correct, and, correct. and identifies them very much as, as lung cancer or cancer patients and I do yeah. think we underestimate that what that how patients feel within themselves and how they feel when they present themselves to the public about that and I think if we can Absolutely. help that then it would be a good thing. Absolutely. 
Okay, Barry, well, thank you very much for taking your time out today to have this chat. Hopefully um, that's been um, helpful to um, people um, who look after and deal with um, lung cancer patients as well as actually patients themselves if, if, if they're listening as well. So um, thanks everybody for um, listening to this podcast. We hope that, um, that it's given you an insight into the management or the, the issue of cancer cachexia and the management of it. Uh, for more information on BTOG, including educational events and how to join, you can visit um, www.btog.org.